why don't you take your Bible and turn with me to that book we've been studying for the last several weeks, and that is the book of Acts. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. I think you would agree with me that this has been a year filled with interruptions. It's, it's hard to imagine all that has taken place that long ago, just a few months ago, we had something called Safer at Home in which we were, we were asked to remain in our house. We went two months, virtually two full months, without being able to gather together for physically worshiping together. And with that, there were schools and businesses and restaurants that had closed down. And even today, we still feel some of those effects. It hasn't returned back to normal, has it? Schools are not back to the way it was. And, and there will be football played today, but it will be largely played in empty stadiums. It has been a time of interruptions. And as we look at the life of Paul, these last several weeks, we have found that his life has been filled with an interruption as well. In Acts chapter 21, he went to the temple, and there he was meeting with some people, and some people from out of town came and accused him of speaking against the temple, against the law, and against God's people. This led to him having an opportunity to present his case in Acts chapter 22, and he did that to his Jews. But it resulted in a riot. In the next chapter, he had another opportunity to present his case, this time to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. But that, too, resulted in a riot. And then last week, we read and learned about how he had a third opportunity to present his case, this time in Caesarea, about 65 miles away, and he presented it to a leader of the Romans, Felix. And this didn't get him anywhere either. We find out that he will remain in jail for an additional two years until there is another ruler, a man named Festus. And as we think about this, it hardly seems fair, does it? I mean, here is a man that has faithfully served the Lord. With courage and boldness, he has gone out and proclaimed the gospel message. God has used him to plant churches. To, to develop leaders, and he has even written letters or books that we still read and teach from today. And how is it the last five years of his life he would remain in jail or under house arrest? As we see throughout the scriptures, this isn't the only time we see something like this. In the first book of the Bible, Joseph was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He ended up in jail for a few years. Daniel, as a result of being faithful to God, he found himself in jail. How about William Tyndale, one who is responsible for translating the Bible? He found himself in jail for just doing that act. Or Corey Ten Boom, who just wanted to save some Jews from the Nazi soldiers, hid them. As a result, she ended up in jail. It hardly seems fair. But when we read through the scriptures, we don't see a lot of fairness, do we? Nor do we see it really in life as well. So what we want to do today 
is look at how Paul handled all these interruption in his life. And here's the key point. The gospel was not just a message that Paul proclaimed. The gospel also was a source of power that would allow Paul to be faithful during these times of interruptions. So let's pick up where we left off last week in Acts chapter 24. The last verse in verse 27 says, When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So in God's providence, he took a passive king and he moved him out to allow another more effective king named Festus. And in chapter 25, verse 1, it says, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon them to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush to kill him on the way. So as we see this new king, a man named Festus, one thing we have to give him credit for. He was only there for three days, and quickly he is looking over the history. And he finds out that there was a, a mess left there from Felix. And he must act swiftly because there was a man in jail for two years who they have no charge for. So he goes down to Jerusalem. Jerusalem made up of Jews and he has a desire to, to offer some closure to this case of Paul. And he sits before these Jews and he wants to hear their case. And what they want to do is get Paul to come back down to Jerusalem but the reason for that is so that they can jump him and kill him. So Festus asked this question in verse 4. Festus replied that Paul was kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. Verse 5. So he said, let the men of authority among you go with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went to Caesarea, and the next day he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, stood around them, bringing many and serious charges against them they could not prove. Verse 8. But Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law or the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do a Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before the Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. So here is what's happening. They go to Caesarea. The Jews who want to persecute Paul meet Festus, the new king there, and they bring charges against him as they had done in the previous chapters. And so Festus asked Paul, do you want to go back down to Jerusalem? And you can hardly blame Paul. Because he's like, listen, I presented my case already in chapter 22. I presented it a second time in chapter 23. I presented it a third time 
and chapter 24. Why would I do it the same way in the same setting? So then he says in verse 11, If then I am wrongdoer, and I have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to these charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. What he says is, listen, if you can find something wrong against me, I am willing to die for that. But you cannot find any charges against me. And so my only case is to appeal to Caesar. If he were in America, it would be, I appeal to the Supreme Court. Take me directly to the Supreme Court. Now at this time, Caesar was Nero, a man who ruled from years 54 to 68. And church, was Nero a good man? He was not at all. He was opposed strongly to Christians. But the early part of his reign, he was a little bit more stable. So it says here, Then Festus, verse 12, what he conferred with his council answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So that is the plan. Paul is going to Rome. And this makes good on the promise from chapter 23, verse 11, where Paul was stood by by Jesus in that verse. And Jesus said to him, Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. There is one problem that this new king has. He's about ready to send him to Rome. But I imagine him trying to fill out his paperwork. And in the paperwork, there's a blank for a charge. Now, what are you going to charge Paul with in order to send him to Caesar? And it is still blank. All these times, they have struggled to find something that they can officially charge Paul with. So in God's providence, there's some visitors that come to Caesarea. Look with me at verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now, throughout the New Testament, there are called the Herodians, or this is King Herod's family. And Agrippa here in verse 13 will be the last of the Herod dynasty. Can you think of some other Herods? There is Herod the Great and Matthew chapter 2 that feels threatened by Jesus' birth and orders all these children to be murdered. There is Herod Antipas who would have been this Agrippa's great uncle. And Herod Antipas orders John the Baptist to be killed. And there is also another Herod Agrippa. We read of him in Acts chapter 12. He made sure that James the Apostle was killed. Instead of this, King Agrippa I, that he was receiving praise by the people. They said, the voice of God and not of man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That is Agrippa here in chapter 25. That is his dad. And now here is this other Herod, the last of the Herods. And he has a sister whose name is Bernice. You read up there of verse 13. Now how many of you have a sister? How many of you can imagine having your sister as a girlfriend? 
hopefully you would all find that really not appealing at all. But for Festus, he was so twisted that his little sister, who was a year younger than him, he saw as his girlfriend. That's right. So he is now invited to hear Paul's case. And what is the purpose of this? It's so that they can find a charge against Paul. Now, having studied this, there is no reason at all for Paul to stand before Agrippa and Bernice. He has made an appeal to go to Caesar to present his case there. And if they have not been able to come up with a charge, that's their own fault. It would have been easy for Paul to stay in his cell and say, send me to Caesar. You have wrongly accused me. You have no charge against me. And and because of that, I will be released. But now he is invited to present his case for the fourth time to Festus and another ruler named Agrippa and Bernice. Now, why would he do this? I would remind you of something that was said of Paul at his conversion. It was said of him in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, to a man that was supposed to go and greet him. He said to that man, Go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Paul had a threefold mission. He would preach to Gentiles, he would preach to Jews, and he would also preach to kings. And so for these last couple of weeks as we've worked through the book of Acts, it's as if he is on a king tour and he is presenting the gospel to various kings. And now presented the opportunity to preach again, not only to Festus, but to Agrippa and Bernice. He cannot help but take advantage of that opportunity. So Festus lays out for him what's taken place over the last two years. And in chapter 25, verse 22, Agrippa says to Festus, I'd like to hear this man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Verse 23 says, So the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. So you can imagine this. The word great pomp means that the king and his his sister came with golden crowns, golden robes, golden rings. They came with all these military officials likely decked out in their best uniforms. Think of a high school graduation. Think of a, a college graduation and all the pomp that goes involved with that. And so here they come to stand before this lowly prisoner, Paul. This week I was reading that there was a second century person. We don't know exactly what Paul looked like, but there is some history, some extra biblical information that suggests that he was a short, bald man with a unibrow. That is a brow that connected both sides. And he walked bow-legged. He kind of walked like this. And there was nothing physically attractive about him. 
So can you imagine the contrast between this bull-legged, unibrowed, bald, old, short man with all this pomp that is before him? And yet he will stand before these rulers and with great boldness proclaim a message. And what do you think that message will be? He is one that we would not argue is the greatest theologian aside from our Lord Jesus ever to live. Do you think he would bring a message on the deity of Christ? Do you think he would bring a message on the ecclesiology or eschatology or the glorification of the saints? All these high flutin doctrines that are essential for us? Do you know what he brings? He brings his testimony. He brings the story of how he became a follower of Jesus. Now, church family, if you've been with us all these weeks, you know this story took place in Acts chapter 9. You know that Paul would later tell the story in Acts chapter 22. And we are seeing it for a third time in Acts chapter 26. And do you think the author of Acts had a design to include this story three different times in the same book. When we covered this in Acts 22, I challenged the church family during the following week to share your testimony with someone. A day after I challenged, I got a phone call from one of the men in our church and said, I left church on Sunday and I went right to a favorite place where I love to hang out. And it was there where I greeted a good friend and I found out that he has a terminal illness. I was able to share with him. I was able to present a gospel track to him. I'm just following up with you because that's what you asked us to do. Just this last week, I got a text from a dear woman within our church that says, you challenged us to share our testimony. A few weeks ago, I did that. And God gave me an opportunity shortly after that service, and I presented it. God gave me that open door, and he has opened several doors for me after that just because I was willing to share my testimony. And because I think the Scriptures encourage us to do it again today, I would challenge you again this coming week to do the same thing. If you are a child of God, to share your story of how you became a child of His. So we pick it up here in Acts chapter 26, verse 1, where it says, Agrippa said to Paul, Agrippa, that is Herod, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. So let's just cover chapter 26 together. I think we got a simple outline. The first is Paul as a Pharisee. The second is him as a persecutor. And the third is that of him as an apostle. So let's look here, beginning in verse 2. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. He said, I'm going to be here a while. Listen to me patiently. In fact, this discourse or this message is the longest of all the ones that we have recorded by Paul in the New Testament. Verse 4. My manner of life from youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, 
if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. As for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He first identifies himself as a Pharisee. Then he says, these people know that I I am here because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought not, I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 10, I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And this gives evidence, it seemed to suggest that he was a part of that Sanhedrin, that he actually casted a vote against the early Christians. Verse 11 says, And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, and in the raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Then he tells of his conversion in verse 12. In this, con- in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those of which I will appear to you. He is identified as a servant. The word servant here is one that would be used to one in the belly of a ship that would be given the responsibility to paddle or to use the oars to row that ship out into the sea. He is also identified as a witness, which is a great word to describe who Paul is and what he has done throughout his ministry. It says in verse 18, well, let's back up to 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see in verse 18, there are four different things that the gospel does to a person's life. When we close our message, I will review that verse. It says there in verse 19 then, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the reign of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, 
that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. So there is the message. Verse 24 says, And as he was saying these things in the defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Let me just pause here. Having proclaimed this message, he is interrupted by the king. And the king says, what are you talking about? By the way, Jesus was accused of being out of his mind on multiple occasions. And then he says to him, listen, these things have not been done in secret. They've not been done in a corner. You have observed them yourselves. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these changes. So here you have this bald little guy proclaiming to the king, you need to be saved. This is why I've come, to proclaim this message to you. Now just as in last week where Philip Felix did not accept that message, we don't have any record that Festus did, nor did Agrippa or Benice, but they heard the gospel as well as all the officials that were there that day, and it is possible that some of them did. Now listen to how this chapter concludes in verse 30. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let me just give you four real quick summary statements of this passage. And they all have to do with the gospel is not something that we convey. It's not just a message that we share, but the gospel also provides the power for us to be faithful when we have interruptions in our life like we have experienced during this year. The first summary statement is this. The gospel enables us to see the truth. Do you see it there in Acts 26, verse 18? Under this fourfold mission that the gospel has, it says this. The gospel, verse 18, open their eyes. This isn't speaking of physical eyes being open, but when we trust Christ, we are able to see in life through spiritual eyes, through what the Bible directs us to see. We can see priorities. We can get perspective in life. And Paul could be in that jail or he could be chained up to a Roman soldier and he says, you know what? I'm grateful that life is not fair because if life was fair, 
then I would receive the justice of God. I deserve God's justice, and God has given me his mercy, and I am grateful for that. In fact, he would say in the writings that would take place a little bit later as he was in jail in Rome, he would say in Philippians 1 verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Through spiritual eyes, he can see what's happened to him by being in prison is actually working out for the good of others. The second summary statement I provide to you is the gospel releases us from the power of Satan and grants us the power of God. You see it in the next part of verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Do you see this? That when you become a child of God, your eyes are open and that you are no longer under Satan's rule, but now you will have access to God's power. And so when faced with a circumstance like what Paul was in, where they could not even bring a charge against him, and this resulted in him being in jail for two years in Caesarea, he will have one wild trip to Rome, and then he will be under house arrest for a few more years. He doesn't need to succumb to depression, to discouragement, to anger. Instead, he has the power of God through the gospel to have the proper perspective and even have joy in the midst of it. While writing from the jail cell, a little bit later, he will say in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. Praise the Lord that he can say that and we can look as an example and say, the power of the gospel made that possible in his life. The third effect that the gospel has in Paul's life at this time and interruptions and in our life as well is the gospel offers forgiveness of sin. And we see that in the third part of verse 18. So that they may receive forgiveness of sins. We may say it this way, that even though Paul was in jail, he was a free man. What do I mean by that? He had experienced forgiveness of his sins, and he had the joy of the Lord. As I was practicing this message this morning, I was thinking of an old song that we used to sing. Um, I'm so glad he has set me free. I'm so glad he has set me free. I'm so glad he has set me free. Singing glory, hallelujah, Jesus set me free. Paul could have sung that. Because he had experienced this joy of having his sins forgiven. And then let me leave you with the fourth impact of the gospel that helped Paul during this time of interruption. And that is, the gospel delivers a sense of belonging with other Christians. Look with me at the last part of verse 18. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The fourth effect that the gospel had is if you are a child of God, you have a place. You have a place not only with Jesus, but you have a place 
with the family of Jesus. You belong. And it was through these dire circumstances that what Paul would reach out and write to his family, to Colossae, to the people in Philippi, to the people in Ephesus, and even to one Philemon, these letters of encouragement, reminding them of the gospel of who Jesus is. He reached out to his family. And you and I, as we go through these uncertain times, we belong to family as well. When we look around the tent, we look around outside, and we can say, thank God that I have a sense of belonging. In fact, as we wrap up our service here at a moment, we'll have food here in a little bit. Out there are some tables. And there's going to be different places for you if you're not already plugged in to serve here at Highland Crest. There's going to be different ministries that are represented by those tables. Whether it's the cancer care ministry, whether it's signing up for Awana or the trucker's ministry. You'll have a chance to fill out some cards for the little Doug and the Beale family. There'll also be an opportunity to, to find out how you can help with the student ministry, whether that's in the youth room or whether that's helping with our students. But there's also a table designated for small groups. And do you have a place where you are meeting with a Bible study? Next Sunday at 9.30, not 9 o'clock, but 9.30, we'll have our Sunday school, a Bible study time. And we want to encourage you to come because you belong. If that time slot doesn't work for you, beginning next Sunday evening, there'll be small groups that meet in various homes and east side of Green Bay and Oneida, up in Pulaski, and Roman is even leading one online if, if you feel more comfortable doing that. The point is, you have a sense of belonging. We would love for you to be a part of that. The same gospel that we proclaim is the same gospel that allows us to remain faithful during years of interruption like the year 2020. Life, the circumstances may not be what you have chosen for yourself today, but the gospel empowers you to remain faithful to God during this time. You have the power to have the joy and contentment. You have the joy in serving others. You have the privilege of sharing the good news of how God offers forgiveness of sins. If you are a Christian this week, embrace that, and I would encourage you to share that message with others. Perfect timing. I didn't need that anymore. <laughs> Let's have a word of prayer, and then we're just going to sing a couple of brief songs. The first is about turning our eyes to Jesus. If you have any questions or if there's a way that I can pray for you during our picnic today, you let me know. Father, help us to do that. Help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Yes, there's been no shortage of interruptions this year and even today. But God, you are still working. The gospel message that we proclaim provides the power for us to remain faithful. May we tap into that power and enjoy our time today and remain faithful to your cause. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing this song together.